Romans chapter 8. We have been preaching through these three verses for a couple of weeks now, taking a hiatus for Easter last Sunday. And so we'll pick back up where we've left off, and I'll do a little catch-up for you as we get started. Let's read chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. The Word of God says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. And this is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is a, an immense task to grasp and grapple with this golden chain that is anchored in heaven. And it is a joyful task and a humbling task. And God, I pray that, that our minds would be pliable this morning, that we would be like soft clay in the hand of the potter. I pray, God, that presuppositions and former barriers and walls and opinions could be at least set aside for the moment that we look at Your Word which would cause us to maybe reevaluate the way that we have understood you to move upon us in the past. And God, I pray that your word, your living word, would be the only rule and measure in which we would use to determine what we believe. As the saint who is in heaven now, Martin Luther said, let God be God. And I pray that your spirit would humble us in this knowledge and understanding of this promise today as we work through it again. In Christ's name, amen. A few weeks ago, we began looking at the promise of Romans 8.28. I want you to look there again at the promise in verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, why take weeks to examine three verses? What's so important about the promise in verse 28 and the conditions of the promise in verses 29 and 30 that merit this detailed, in-depth study? Well, the reason why we're walking so slowly through this promise is because of the enormity of the promise. This is one of the greatest promises in all of the Bible. This promise is so deep and so wide and so strong that if you will get it, really get it, it will become one of the greatest weapons in your life for defeating sin and defeating discouragement and battling depression and waging war against temptation and reveling against your self-exaltation and your self-justification and your self-preservation. Because in verse 31, Paul says, 
in light of the promise and in light of the conditions of the promise. So if God is for us, then who can be against us? In other words, if we will understand the promise of verse 28 and the conditions of the promise as set forth in verses 29 and 30, then we can live and say, well then, if that is the promise that is given to me, I have nothing to ever fret about. Not broken air conditioners or paving parking lots or fixing baptistries or the lack of a job or sickness or health or marriage or school or death or children or no children or education or no education. I have nothing to really worry about. Because if God is for me in this promise to work all things after my good, to conform me to the image of Christ, why worry? My aim in this series is for you to grasp this truth. The truth that if by the sheer grace of God's sovereign will, He has taken you, you, by name, personally, individually, aside, and He works all the pain and all the pleasure together for your good, then no opponent can really succeed against you. No opponent can succeed against you. Teenagers, that means that you don't have to exalt yourself in school because God is working all things together for your good, including high school and the torture of it. I would rather go through ranger school for four consecutive years than go back to high school. High school was torture. You should remember when you were in high school, parents, and have empathy with your children who go through that environment, especially if your kids aren't cool or star athletes or wearing Tommy Hilfiger or Hillbilly or whatever is in vogue now. See, you don't need to dress your kids in the latest fashion to help them through school. You don't need to get them the nice car to get them through school. You need to ground them that they were created for the glory of God and if they are in Christ, He is working all things, even high school, together for their good and His glory. By the way, if you take the latter route or the former route, then you will just prepare them for a life of depression and failure instead of preparing them for a life of exaltation in God. When we understand this promise, we will no longer have to justify ourselves or fret about preserving ourselves. If the Lord of the universe has sworn to work for you, why are you anxious about anything? Why are you caught up in seeking comfort and security if God is going to work His will for you? Listen, I don't mean to be cavalier in what I say. Don't take this as cavalier, que sera, sera. I am not a fatalist at all. I believe in a sovereign, supreme God who has a plan. But I'm here to tell you, if you do not give, or you are not able to give, and we have to borrow all of the money to do the repairs, or we're turned down and can borrow none of the money and can do none of the repairs, God is still on His throne and has a perfect and good plan, and we can rejoice in it. 
Your Father knows what you need and He works everything for your good. So leave your exaltation and your justification and your preservation in His sovereign hands and live in freedom. That's what this promise does. It sets you free. You're free. You don't have to be somebody that you're not. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to do something dangerous or stupid or sinful or reckless to fit into some group because if you are in Christ, you are in the only group that matters. That's what this promise is about. You don't have to lose weight or dye your hair or buy a car or get married or get the right job or graduate from the right school. This promise is about that God is working together in your life the smallest details to bring about His glory and your good. Do you think it's important that we really understand this promise then? It is. It's important that we understand the promise and the foundation of it. When God's chosen people really understand and believe Romans 8.28, then everything from the measles to the mortuary, they become the freest and the strongest and the most generous people in the world. We can give because it's not ours, it's His, and He gave it to us, and He can give it again. We are not shackled by the pleasure or acceptance or desires of the world because we are set free in Christ. And that's what this promise is geared toward. The power of the promise is substantiated in the foundation in 29 and 30. We've got to get 29 and 30 or we won't get the promise. If anyone ever quotes to you Romans 8.28 and leaves out 29 and 30, then you should finish the quote by quoting 29 and 30 because 28 is powerless without 29 and 30. 28 is a Mack truck. 29 and 30 are the fuel that makes it go. It's powerless without 29 and 30. Today, our focus is on the first sentence in verse 30. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Two weeks ago, we zeroed in on the meaning of foreknowledge on a Sunday morning. And predestination in verse 29 on Sunday night. Because Paul says that the foundation of the promise in verse 28 is the golden chain of 29 and 30. Foreknowledge and predestination and calling and justification and glorification are the chain that substantiates the promise. God's working all things together for the good of those who are the called. There it is, see? 28 and 30 go right together. There, there it is, right there. Look at verse 30. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Go back up to verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God, for those who are what? Called. That's the focus. But before we look at the call, let me, let me just remind you where we've been. Some of you missed those sermons, so let me give them to you in a real quick nutshell and encourage you to get the tapes. But let me just do a quick, a quick review. I didn't know how much time we would have after Adam and Dale went, so I'm hoping to be able to meet our time standards and pick up on this tonight. First, I told you that the promise of verse 28 is not a blanket promise for everyone in the universe. God causes all things to work together for the good. You can't say that to your lost co-worker or your lost children or your lost friends or your lost neighbors. You can't walk up to them in a car after a car wreck 
and everybody's okay and set them on the back and say, well, you know, the Bible says God causes all things to work together for good. If they are not in Christ, you cannot give them that promise. It's not theirs. It's not for them. It's for those who love God. It's for those who have been called by God. So you can't say that to them. Those who love and are called according to His purpose. And that's that, there's that word, the called. What does it mean to be one of the called of God? You're going to see that it means that God overcomes the rebellion of your dead heart and effectually changes you. That's what it means to be one of the called. His call is not a call that we give to our dog when he bullies his way out of the gate. Here, Hershey. Here, Hershey. Depending on how long he's been locked up in his cubicle of a yard will depend upon how quickly he returns. If he's been locked up in there for some time and not been walked and not had a chance to get exercise, you can call and call and call and he is deaf to your call and he just runs. We've got to get in the truck and we've got to go find him and put a leash on him and bring him back home. Sometimes we call him right away if we've got a treat or a ball and he sees that, he turns right around and comes right back home. It's not that kind of call. That's not the call that the Bible's talking about here. It's not the call that you deliver to your children when they're outside playing. Supper time. Don't you wish that the children would just stop what they're doing? Make a beeline for the door? Go wash their hands? Sit down and wait to pray? Do they do that? No. They don't do that. Unless they're hungry, really hungry, and been pestering you for a snack. Then they come. Otherwise, what do they do? They keep playing. Come on, time to eat. And they keep playing. I'm not going to call you again. Time to eat. And they keep playing. And you go outside and say, did you not hear me? No, we didn't hear you. That's a lie. (laughs) Just come inside. It's not that kind of a call. That's not the call that the Bible has in mind when He says, the called. And those whom He predestined, He called. God is not up in heaven going, Charlie, Charlie, come on, come on, come on, Charlie. That's not the call. You want a picture of the call? It's in John 11. Lazarus, come forth. Jesus didn't have to call Him twice. The dead man who stinketh by now got up and came out alive the first time God called. Mary and Martha could have stood outside that cave for four days. Lazarus! 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 They could have got the whole community of Bethany to get together and in unison shouted, Lazarus! And he would not have heard and would not have responded. But when the Son of God shows up, he calls out his name one time, Lazarus, come forth, and the dead man comes. That is the call of God. That is the call of Romans 8.30. All those whom he predestines, he calls and they come. The second thing that we saw in these verses beforehand was the pro, uh, uh, that this promise and call of God is limited to a definite group. Specifically, those whom were foreknown and predestined. Look at verse 29 again. 
For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. Two weeks ago, we spent Sunday morning and Sunday night looking at foreknowledge and predestination. And we saw that in this context, God's foreknowledge is not a foreknowledge of future faith or of future works. I need to clarify this because I was asked this question. Brother Charlie, do you mean that God doesn't see the future works that we'll do? That is not what I mean. Of course God sees the future works that you will do. But Charlie, do you mean that God doesn't see the future faith that we will have? That is not what I mean. Of course God sees the future faith that you will have. God sees everything. What I mean, or what, no, no, no. What Paul means here is that the predestination is not based upon foreseen faith or foreseen works. That's the point of Paul's use of foreknowledge and predestination. Paul says those whom he foreknew, not that which he foreknew. Those people. It's not to say that God does not see your future faith or your future works. He does. Then on Sunday night, we examine the third characteristic of the promise in verse 28, which is that the purpose of election or predestination... See, people, they miss it. Boy, you bring up the word predestination in, in some circles, and I mean, you would just think that you just started cussing madly. They run out pulling their hair. Scared to death that God might infringe upon your precious free will. God, Paul says that God predestines to conform you to the image of Christ. Look at verse 29. For those whom He foreknew, He predestined. And then we ask the question, for what? To be conformed to the image of His Son. God the Father so loves God the Son that He desires for there to be an entire nation of people in heaven who are just like His Son. He, he desires for there to be people in heaven who love the things that the Son loves and hates the things that the Son hates, who think like the Son who value the things that the Son values. And so He predestines there are a whole group of people be conformed into that image. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too one day, like Christ, will be raised from the dead and be transformed into our glorified state and will be just like Jesus forever. The practical upshot of these past few sermons is that God has chosen you before the foundation of the world apart from any merit or distinctives in you and He's appointed for you a destiny of glorious Christ-likeness. Can I tell you that this past week I was tempted by Satan to sin? I am a filthy, wretched, rotten sinner. I, I, I will tell you that I do not for a moment, I do not for a moment want you to think that I am lifting myself above you or beyond you. I am a sinner, but I have been saved by grace. I trust in the finished work of Christ. But you know, Calvin, I heard, I heard it quoted yesterday that Calvin said that there is a little bit of unbelief in all of us until we die. I was tempted last week to sin, and God brought to mind my own preaching and His Word, and I said out loud, God has predestined me to be conformed to the image of Christ. I will not give in. I want to tell you something, folks. That is being set free. I will not give in. 
I have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, according to Romans 8.29, so I will not give in. You have that same freedom. You have that same promise. You have that same power, that same authority. I'll go even farther. That same responsibility to say, no, God has predestined me to be conformed to the image of Christ. I'll go so far as to say this. I said it in the preaching, in the sermon before, I'll say it again. If you are not being conformed into the image of Christ, you need to question whether you are in Christ. Because God does not save anyone without the explicit end goal of conforming you to the image of His Son. Guaranteed work. Sanctification is a necessary and guaranteed work. The writer of Hebrews says, Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. This morning we come to the next link in this golden chain. In verse 30, Paul says, Those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He glorified. And I want you to take notice of something. And take this off. I want you to take notice of something. Everyone that God predestines, He calls. Everyone that God calls, He justifies. And everyone that God justifies, He glorifies. Look at verse 30. You tell me if that's not the case. For those... 29 and 30. For those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. Look at verse 30. And those whom He predestined, He called. And those whom He calls... All those that He predestines, He calls. All those that He calls, He justifies. All those that He justifies, He glorifies. There is none that is left out. None are called by God that are not justified. None are justified by God that will not be glorified. It's an all or nothing game with God. In or out. Called or not. But if God calls... You come. The title of the message that I gave this is God's Effectual Call. Forget Sunday nights, it'll be next Sunday mornings. Notice the word in the title, effect. Effectual. God's effectual call. An effectual call is a call that produces an effect. I'm not trying to insult your intelligence, but sometimes we will miss little 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 portions of the Word that help us to understand the meaning. That's what Paul has in mind here, an effectual call. The shorter catechism in answer to the question, well, what is effectual call? says, effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds and knowledge of Christ, renewing our wills, He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the Gospel. Before you come to Christ, you are a puppet on a string. You are all Pinocchios, and so was I. Tied to death by sin. But God comes along, and He takes His divine scissors, and one sermon, and one verse, and one person at a time begins to clip the strings, and begins to clip that which is holding you down. And when the last one is clipped, the effectual call is given and you get up. Because you are set free. Because you are made alive. Because you are called by God. 
And God does not hope to accomplish His will. As we saw in our text this morning from Isaiah 46, God says, I have planned it. I will do it. No fickle, limited human being thwarts the divine will of a holy, sovereign, eternal God. Never has, never will. So the question that we're going to look at is how. It's not how right now. Not how does God do it. There's a question that begs to be asked before we look at how. You see, the question that comes to mind is why does God have to effectually call us? I hope that's what's kind of running through some of your heads right now. Why does He have to do something in us in order to get us to respond to Him? I mean, don't we have a free will? Isn't every man's choice to come or not to come to God? So at this point, I want to, I want to take this idea of the effectual call and I want to kind of set it up on the back shelf just for a little bit right here so we can get it tonight and bring it back down. And I want to address the question of why do we have to have an effectual call? Why isn't, just, why isn't it just set out there like Morrison's Cafeteria, you choose? Well, the answer is the doctrine of total depravity. That's the answer to the question. In short, now you probably thinking, well, what is that? Let me share with you the, second, the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith's Article 9 on free will. Very short. Man, by his fall into a state of sin, hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. You can't do it. You're dead in sin. We're going to take a minute and look at these passages in just a moment. In essence, what this article is saying is that when Adam and Eve fell into sin in the garden, their spiritual nature was so corrupted that neither they nor their descendants, you and me, Romans 5.12, by, by one man sinned into the world and death through sin, therefore death spread to all men because all sinned in Adam. The governmental theory of the fall. God created Adam and Eve in the garden. God could not have created a more perfect human beings. They were more perfect than you and me. They were the absolute perfect human beings in the garden. And yet, the ones that God created chose to sin and fall, representing all of humanity. Every one of us would have made the same choice. When they fell, we fell in them. Children are born sinners, conceived in iniquity, brought forth from the womb with lies on our lips, the Bible says. We are born that way, and then we become sinners by choice as we grow. You didn't take long to see that. Go downstairs to the nursery. Give me that. Mine. Will you share? No. Will you sit down? Uh-uh. That's rebellion. That's what all that is. It's rebellion and selfishness and self-centeredness. And we look at it and we go, isn't that cute? And it isn't cute. It's wicked sin is what it is. It's, it, it is the outworking of our sin nature. And every one of us and all of our children are plagued by that. Why? Because Adam and Eve fell in the garden plunging all of humanity into sin. That's why. There must be something to take place in us to free us from sin. Writing on this subject, the theologian who has gone to be with the Lord, it is a man, not a woman, named Lorraine Botner. 
uh, somebody was asking me, well, what did she say? And I said, she, hold on, it's a man. I think it was Toby that did that. The teaching of the Scriptures is such that we must say that man in his natural state is radically corrupt, that he can never become holy and happy through any power of his own. He is spiritually dead. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, well, wait a second. Now, you're quoting theologians and you're quoting the 1689 Second London Confession and the Shorter Catechism. We don't, we don't get, our, we don't get our, our belief about God from those things. They're just rules to help us to understand the Bible. Give me something from the Bible. I'm glad that you said that. I'm glad that you said that. You want something from the Bible. You want me to prove the point from the Bible. Well, that's what I want to do. But first, let me tell you that you'll never understand or agree with this doctrine if you simply compare one man to another man. Because on a human level, one man may be better than another man. On a human level. The subjective sliding scale. We may say of an outstanding citizen in Newcastle, he is such a good man. But... Is he a good man in comparison to man's standard or is he a good man in comparison to God's standard? That's the question. In Romans chapter 14, verse 23, Paul says, whatever is not from faith is sin. He's speaking about eating foods sacrificed to idols. And he finally sums up the whole chapter and he comes down to your will and exercising your will and what you want and this and that and the other. And he finally says in 14, 23, hey, listen, whatever is not from faith is sin. That is an immense statement. Whatever is not from faith is sin. This man is a good employee, but he's not a Christian. Why is he a good employee? For this reason right here. I'm such a good worker. Talk to any, quote, good, unquote, man about his work or as a family man or a father, or a son. What will they boast in? They'll boast in their work ethic. They'll boast in their giving. They'll boast in their sacrifice. They'll boast in their faithfulness to their wife when their father wasn't faithful. They'll boast in everything about them. And then they'll say, but I'm a good man. God won't send a good man to hell. Hell will be full of good men. It'll be full of more good men than wicked men, I'll guarantee you. The Bible says that there are none good. Not even one in comparison to the righteousness that God requires. Paul says whatever is not from faith is sin. And all the virtue in the world is still nothing but self-centered back padding if it's not rooted in the love for God and His glory. Unless we start here, we'll never grasp why we have to have an effectual call. We need to start here. So for the rest of our time, let's look at Scripture. I, I struggle whether to have you try to find the Old Testament passages or not. We're gonna, but we need to look at some of these. So see if you, can find, if you can find the book of Ezekiel. I don't mean it once again to be insulting, but some folks have trouble with some of the old, older books. So find Ezekiel chapter 11. Let me just walk through about three or four Old Testament passages and then we'll go to the New and we'll make the argument of why there has to be an effectual call. Speaking of the condition of man separate from Christ. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19. This is the promise of the new covenant. 
And in verse 19 in chapter 11, God is speaking about man's unconverted heart. And I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them, and I will make the heart of stone, and I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Now, usually in the New Testament, the word flesh is the word sarks, and we think of the word flesh as meaning sinful. Where Paul says in 1 Corinthians, you're acting so fleshly. It's not, it's not meant that way in the context here. The context here is that before God saves you, your heart is like a big rock, hard stone. It's hard. It's dead. It doesn't feel anything toward God. It's not convicted of sin. It doesn't hate its sin. The heart, by the way, in the Bible, is not talking about the, the blood-pumping muscle. It's talking about who you are, your psyche, the noetic structure, your makeup, the way you think. We might, for contextual purposes, say your mind. Hard, like a rock. You ever talk to anybody about Christ and they're just hard? They don't want to hear it? Why, why are we surprised? The Bible says that outside of Christ, the heart is like a rock. Hard. And God says, but I'm going to take that rock out and I'm going to put a heart of flesh in. Soft. Blood pumping. Living. Providing life. Do you get the picture? Now, we don't got to turn there. You can't turn, turn to 36. I don't want any of you to walk away feeling that I shortchanged you. So, turn to 36. He says it again in 36, 26. In chapter 36, verses 23 and following, He's giving this whole reason behind the promise of this new covenant. Remember, Jesus picked up the cup and said, in this cup is the new covenant. The new covenant is now. We are in the new covenant. And He says in 36, 26, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And then notice what He says in verse 27. Here's a promise of the Old Testament. And I will put my spirit of the Old Testament. A promise of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Why do we have to have an effectual call from God? Why does something supernatural got to happen to us to come to Christ and salvation? Because outside of Christ, our hearts are as hard as rocks. You can't say to a rock in the stream, hey, get up here on the shore. I want to use you as a paperweight. It's hard. It's dead. It's lifeless. And outside of Christ, that's the lost man's heart. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 13. That's backwards. Turn backwards if you're turning in your Bible. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 13. Verse 23. Jeremiah is describing the wickedness of man. Can the Ethiopian... This is called a rhetorical question. The answer is implied. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? The color of his skin. Or the leopard his spots? then you also can do good. God is saying to Israel, you know what He's saying? He's saying, listen, just like the black man can't make himself white, 
And just like that leopard that you see over there, he can't stress himself out and make himself all one color. Neither can you do good on your own. Turn over to chapter 17, verse 9. Jeremiah. God, once again, speaking of the evil heart, says in 17, 9, The heart is more deceitful than all else, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The King James says, desperately wicked. A wicked heart. A deceitful heart. Let me just ask you. I mean, do I have to convince you that you are a sinner? Does anyone need to convince you that you are wicked? No. No. Why do we have most of our fights with our spouses if we're married? Because our needs aren't being met or our perceived needs aren't being met. Why didn't you have supper ready on time? Why didn't you take your shoes off when you came in the house? Why were you late coming home? Our perceived need. It's all about me. What is that about? It's about a desperately sick and wicked heart. Now let's go to the writer who I'm arguing from now. Let's go to Romans chapter 3. And let's get some just real ironclad argument here in why God has to be the agent of our salvation. Why it is that God must effectually change us or we will not believe. Romans chapter 3, let's pick up in verse 9. Once again, Paul argues. He raises a question and argues. Pick up in verse 9. He says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For, we've al- for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Now, pick up in verse 10. This is written. Notice what he says. There is how many righteous? There is how many who understands? And how many seek for God? And how many have turned aside and gone their own way and become useless? And how many is it that does good? And how? And not even one, he goes on to say. And then he begins to describe them. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep on deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of the peace they have not known. Look at verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, I know what somebody is sitting there thinking right now. Do you mean that really nobody seeks after God? Well, what about the Muslims or the Hindus or the Buddhists or the Spiritists or the mystics? Aren't they seeking after God? The point that Paul is making is that none seek after the God of this book on His terms on their own merit. That's the point that he's making. What they're doing is making a God for themselves. Lots of men do that. Well, I don't know what the Bible says, but I'm going to tell you what I believe. Hold on. Time out. This is the rule of faith and the only rule of faith. So I don't care what you believe if it's not substantiated from a good exegetical exposition of the text. Because this is the rule of faith. And this book says that none seek after God on their own. None understands. None does good. None. Zero. Since the fall, never been one. Unless, what? God moves effectually. Which we're going to get to again tonight. Look at chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, Romans. Let's look at two or three more of these and we'll close. Once again, 
I'm asking the question before I answer the question. The question is, is why an effectual call? Then tonight it's going to be, what is an effectual call? Right now we're, why? Why do we have to have an effectual call? Because we can't do good? Because our hearts are desperately wicked? Because no one seeks after God? Because no one understands? Because our hearts are as hard as stone? And then notice what he says in chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. Pick up in verse 6. The mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it does not even want to. Is that what it says? Is that what it says? It says it is not what? Able to. Not able Enable. It's like you saying to a little boy, pick up that 50-pound weight and bring it to me. And he looks at it and says, that weighs more than me. It isn't that I haven't got the desire. I'm not able. I can't pick that up. The lost man is unable to come to God on his own merit. Not only in 8, 7, and 8, in John, er, earlier in chapter 6, verse 17, he said that they were slaves to sin. A slave. Think about what a slave is. They're shackled. They're guarded. They cannot escape. Unless somebody greater than who has them enslaved conquers and sets them free. Hey, that'll preach. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You're in Romans, First and Second Corinthians chapter four. Turn there with me, please. Second Corinthians chapter four, verses three and four. We're almost, we're almost, we're almost through. Although I heard a statistic yesterday, it said that the younger the crowd, the less they are concerned about the time. Second Corinthians chapter four, verses three and four. Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled. There's a curtain over it so you can't see. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, who's it veiled to? Those who are perishing. In whose case, those who are perishing, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Do you get it? Paul says that the unbelievers are blind. Can you imagine saying to a blind man, just, just read this to me? Well, is it in Braille? No, but just read it. Well, I can't read it. I can't see. So you go through and turn all the lights in the house on. Is that any better? No. I'm blind. I can't see. That's how it is with the unconverted. They're blind. They can't see what you see. Have you ever sat down with somebody and taken the Bible and tried to show them some things and they're lost and they get up and they go, I just don't get it? Don't be surprised. They're blind. The reason why they don't get it is because what they need is for the Holy Spirit to pull the veil down, to give them effectual call, to grace them and make them alive. It's interesting what Paul does in verse 6 of chapter 4. He goes on and says, For God who said, 
staying with his same illustration, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In other words, a blind man is sitting there and all of a sudden, light breaks through. Not because he's on his own effort, pulling at his eyes, because the God of the universe and the God of light breaks through the darkness and gives him light. Effectually. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. You're in 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. We're just scratching the surface of this. Brothers and sisters, this isn't an exhaustive thing. We're just scratching the surface in the little time that we've got in our preaching this morning. This is a, this is a grandiose, humongous truth that is foundational to our sola salutis, our order of salvation. Look in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were really, really sick in your trespasses and sins. Is that what it says? Dead. Dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You ever been to a funeral? Is the man laying in the coffin almost dead? He's really almost dead. We can't, we can't start it yet because he's almost dead. If he's in the coffin, he's dead. They've sucked his blood out and pumped him full of formaldehyde and he's dead. He's gone. Paul says, before Christ, you were dead. He goes on in verse 2 and he says, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the Spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived. We were all dead, he says. Every one of us was dead before Christ. In the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And we've got to wait till the night to get verse 4, which begins with, but God. But God did something about it. That's the good news. That's the effectual call. We were dead. I was dead. And then one day, God showed up. I was dead. You were dead. And one day, God broke through your darkness and your death and He reached His nail-pierced hand through the darkness and He grabbed your dead soul and He yanked you into the light. That's effectual call. Colossians 2.13 Once again, Paul says it again. When you were really, really, really sick. That ain't what he says, is it? Let me tell you something, guys. I'm going to tell you what the difference is. The difference in understanding this right and wrong is the difference between going as a preacher to the graveyard and preaching and God calling dead men to get up out of their graves and going to the hospital ward and preaching and you calling sick people to get up off their beds. That's the difference. That's the difference. When we preach the gospel, we're not preaching in a hospital ward. We are preaching in the graveyard. We're preaching to those that are dead, lifeless, hearts are stone, cannot change their spots, cannot change their color, cannot do good, do not seek after God. They're blinded. 
But we preach the gospel, which is the power of God and the salvation, to anyone who will believe. It is the power of God to break through death. He says in 2.13, when, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which is hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, and when He had, dis- and when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. Therefore, no one is to act as our judge in regard to food or drink and respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are merely a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let me summarize that for you, young people. No one is to tell you that you're not cool because you don't wear certain clothes. No one is to tell you that you're not valuable because you don't make a certain amount of money. No one is to say to you because you don't look a certain way or act a certain way or drive a certain car or live in a certain neighborhood or have this success in your life or this success in your life that you don't fit in because you have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. That's all that matters. That's all that matters. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That's all that matters. Everything else is a passing away. It's all going to burn up. But the righteousness of Christ will be tested by fire and purified and you will take that righteousness with you to heaven forever and ever and ever. You ever wonder why it is that you can share the gospel with one friend or relative and they'll repent and believe in Christ? You share the same gospel with another friend or relative and they don't seem to be even the remotest interested. Why is that? Because outside of God changing their nature, which is tonight's message, they cannot and will not come to Christ. They, like you and me and every other sinner outside of Christ, are dead in sin and trespasses. I hope that the question that you're left with about right now goes something like this. This is the closing question, I hope. If this is our condition outside of grace, if this is the condition of my husband or my wife or my children or me, a heart of stone, Ezekiel eleven nineteen, unable to do good in comparison to God, Jeremiah thirteen twenty three, unable to seek out God, Romans three ten, unable to subject myself to the will of God, Romans eight seven, a slave to sin, Romans six seventeen, blind by sin, Second Corinthians four four dead in my sin, Ephesians 2 and Colossians 2. If that's me, then how can I be saved? And that's exactly the point of tonight's message. An effectual call from God. I'm going to close with the prayer and then we're going to stand and sing. Jesus is tenderly calling. How appropriate How can I be saved? Jesus is tenderly calling. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we stand and we sing this song, that if somebody is at the edge of eternity right now and ready to step into the realm of heaven because you have in the midst of your preaching yanked out the dead, cold, stony heart and given them a heart of repentance and faith in Christ. I pray that they would not tarry until tonight. I pray they would come right now, young or old, church member or not. I pray that they would not wait 
Today is the day of salvation. Right now is the moment of conversion. For whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For with the mouth we confess that God raised him from the dead. And with the heart we believe. God, give them belief. Do this for your glory and our great good in Christ's name. Amen.